Welcome in to the best in paranormal podcasting. This is Darkness Radio. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. It's an interesting show today, folks. I'm trying to think of what we're going to call this show. I think we're going to call it, Do You Believe This Edition? Or Do You Believe That Edition? Because, boy, we got some stories today that you're going to shake your head and go, I don't think I believe that, but we're going to go with it anyways. Uh, we got to bring in a co-host this week. Uh, they're falling like flies, folks. <laughs> so today uh, we're bringing in the one, the only, the host of, um, you know, you have you have such a long title on your podcast. Uh, it is not difficult. If you did your homework, Urban Legends and Stranger Truth. That's right. Urban Legends and Stranger Truth. I know it up here, but I have so much going on today. Bob Dennis, by the way, our are And you're talking co-host. about flies. You know what flies land on. I mean, that, well, you know, they so do. You're, yeah. saying, you're saying I'm some kind of a... Uh, you know, no, no, I'm not it. saying that. Why are you going to the most negative common denominator here? That's not what I mean. I, like we said yesterday. Because I like, to, I like to make you uncomfortable and just see a squirm because you're so nice. <laughs> see, that's the thing is that I, I've been out of Minnesota a lot of years, so I'm done with Minnesota nice. I'm just you know, East Coast nastiness. Kind of I stuff. guess, I guess. Uh, we've got Bob Dennis with us today, and we're going to be going through a lot of stories today, Bob, that you're going to go, are you kidding me? Um, but no, it, it, these are serious stories and from somewhat serious news sources. I don't know when it comes to the paranormal <laughs> that they can be serious or not. But um, but yeah, they're somewhat serious news sources. Uh, yesterday, the interview with uh, Barbara Butcher, I'm getting some really good comments about the interview, and I appreciate it. Uh, there's some really nice, uh, and, and I want to follow up. We're only going to have one parish here today, Bob. Uh, and we're going to do that first uh, because it has to do with yesterday's interview. Uh, really nice comments in the chat today about the interview. And I got an interesting email today from someone who was down at Ground Zero uh, during the recovery effort. And it comes from Kenny. I won't give a last name. Um, Kenny says, hey, Tim, I listened to the True Crime Tuesday show you released today, uh, which was... 71823 with Barbara Butcher. She spoke on being on 30th Street and she was able to go to a shack, that's in quotes, to be fed and talk to people about what they had seen in the 9-11 attacks and received clothing, socks, toiletries, etc. I was a volunteer during the 9-11 attacks and worked at that shack on 30th Street after the 9-11 attacks. I most likely fed and either spoke or listened to Barbara during that time. It was so long ago, it feels like, and I haven't spoke much about the things I saw during that time. To be able to hear someone who was actually there and being able to know that the volunteering we were doing made a difference made me cry deeply in my car at my job during a break. They were tears of joy knowing it did make a difference. I've obviously never been able to find or speak to those individuals again, and somehow, some way, I was able to hear the voice of someone that helped. It was one of the most healing moments I've had happen in a very long time. Thank you for doing those shows and continuing to share stories like these with us. Regards, Kenny. Well, Kenny, uh, I was moved when I read your your email. I forwarded it to Barbara. And uh, Barbara had a response that I'm only going to give back to Kenny uh, to say she was touched is an understatement. So uh, Hmm. I'm glad we could connect the, the circuit. Well, you know, thank you to uh, Kenny, and uh, I know it's not to sound trite, but there's a uh, a meme, and it's, it's a thing of of uh, Mister Rogers, where he said that when there were bad things going on, his mother would tell him to look for the helpers, 
Mm-hmm. And in this case, Kenny was one of those helpers. Yes. And uh, when you get into a situation where there's something horrible like that and there are helpers there, there is no amount of words that can express the appreciation that you have for the people who have the strength when you don't to be able to help you get through what you think you can. And, yes. Uh, so once yeah. again, thank you, Kenny. Exactly. Bob, you put it perfectly. You know, and I said it yesterday, you know, God calls forward the people that that have to step up in times of, of extreme uh, chaos and, and and calls forward those soldiers. And, and Kenny, you were one of them. And you were there to bring comfort to the people that needed it at that time that that were going through a horrendous trauma doing what they were doing to bring comfort to those who had lost people in 9-11 and uh everybody played their parts in that scenario that horrific scenario that we could only imagine on the sidelines watching through media uh we had no idea and still have no idea and it's only through your stories that we find out what it was that you were going through uh down there and and I, I get some small honor of being able to bring your stories to you through this podcast. And, and through media, we, we get the honor of being able to tell your stories. And, and so that, that's all I have to say. We, we get that honor. That's the only way to put it. We get the honor of being able to tell, retell your stories uh, through you to other people. And it's important to keep those stories going. So, mm-hmm. It's uh- you know, and the thing is, is that um, the people are still there today who are helping, but they are helping in different ways and somewhat removed from that day. I mean, obviously, it's been uh, 22 years, uh, but um, and, and this is OK. It's my own. And since I'm not going to get into what do I do, what I do for a living, because I can't. But mm-hmm. um, there was I had to do research on something. And that was, uh, I had to do this for in regard to a lawsuit that was being filed on behalf of firefighters mm-hmm. and specifically firefighters who were involved in nine 11 because many of them, uh, had health issues mm-hmm. from cancer to blindness to, uh, because they gave everything they had to save people. Mm-hmm. And, um, my little bit was that I had done, uh, research into, um, Toxoplasmosis in relation to macular degeneration in firefighters. Oh, wow. And and, uh, I did the research on that and presented it to the group, which was then used to supplement the information to help uh, people who were getting relief, who were firefighters and policemen and and, uh, involved in 9-11. And uh, so when you see those things about uh, firefighters being reimbursed, uh, that's part of it because they gave everything they had. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I did that, uh, what's called pro bono. I did that for free. Yeah. Because yeah. I felt that was something. And then I don't want lauding for that. That's not why I bring it up. It's that right, right. the people who help now themselves need help. So I'm sorry, I'm going on. No, on, no, no. That's, that's just fine. And as Barbara pointed out yesterday on the show, only 60% of victims of 9 11 have been found and identified their remains. Uh, and there are going to be people who died that day that will never be found they were vaporized mm-hmm. they're, they're gone mm-hmm. um so there's that tragedy as well but uh, dr hirsch who is the head or chief medical examiner there in new york uh, who has since passed away his his goal was to 
uh, find those those victims and and identify every each last one. So mm-hmm. uh, they work tirelessly in New York to this day to try and, and do that. The medical examiner's office still has a section dedicated to 9-11 victims and to try and find those remains or find out what happened to those people who perished on 9-11. So God bless them and and uh, in their work and, and their tireless effort to, to find those victims. So there you go. Uh, let's get to the program here, Bob. It's uh, it's an interesting week. We'll start it off. We've, we've got plenty of stories here today. Of course, we're going to start it off with the, the UFO front and that uh, Congress is going to get together this next week to talk about ufos we have some stories about bigfoot today one that's a half joking alert about bigfoot in one town another that's a serious bigfoot sighting we'll talk about haunted dolls today we've got that coming up as well in the program and a singer has divorced her ghost husband we'll wrap it up today with that story as well but first (laughs) yeah i know it it's one of those do you really believe this stories uh but first let's talk about congress they're getting together to talk about ufos next week it turns out that legislators do want to know what the deal is with all these weird sightings just as much as the rest of us in fact they may force those unknown forces within government to tell them exactly what's going on which is a bit of a catch-22 i'll tell you what i mean uh as we get to this story uh, things have gotten excitingly weird in America lately, so it's par for the course that our government is going to hold a hearing about unidentified flying objects next week. The House Oversight Committee is planning a little get-together on July 26th to tackle the topic of UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, formerly called UFOs. The hearing will be headed by Republican Representatives Anna Paulina Luna of Florida and Tim Burchett of Tennessee. What exactly will be discussed at the hearing is unclear, but Burchett... Uh, has made it known that he will be filling in for Fox Mulder as the residential paranormal investigator hard-ass. On Monday, he merely tweeted out, We're done with the cover-ups. Later, when questioned by reporters about the upcoming hearing, he portrayed the event as an authentic example of defiance against the murky national security state. Oh, we're getting paranoid here. He said, we're going to have professionals in here and we're getting blowback from some of the alphabet agencies. I'm sick of government that does not trust the people, he said. Blowback from alphabet agencies. Hmm. Hmm. uh, So now you have the government not trusting the people and the people not trusting the government. And the UFOs going, oh, this is working to our advantage. (laughs) probably uh america has seen of course renewed interest in ufos largely as a result of david grush who is the former counterintelligent official who claims that the u.s government is finding evidence of crashed aircraft not of this world grush also claims uh that he also got blowback as well from black programs and that uh-huh. in, in his claims when he came forward and that the government has been trying to shut him down and secretive programs uh, that have been nested within other classified projects and programs that are likely involving illegal activity. Uh, the article that was in the debrief quotes numerous high-ranking government officials, all of which seem to corroborate what Grush has said. In fact, they say he's a man who's beyond reproach. Hmm. So that there's credibility there. Uh, Grush has at least some cause to comment on this topic because he previously served as an internal defense department 
team or on an internal defense department team the unidentified aerial phenomena task force that studied ufos grush claims he left government service in april to advance government accountability through public awareness as part of that public awareness campaign grush has made a number of eyebrow raising claims including that the u.s may have retrieved dead ufo pilots and that's in quotes as a result of its covert ufo retrieval programs that americans may have been killed to protect those said programs and even as we reported last week that the u.s recovered an alien spacecraft from fascist dictator benito mussolini in 1933 i heard that i heard your program it was excellent yeah thank you uh when asked for comment on monday house speaker kevin mccarthy did not seem to take the upcoming hearing particularly seriously he was quoted as saying i think if we had found a ufo the department of defense would tell us <laughs> someone's living in dreamland uh because they would probably want to request more money yeah that money is hidden okay the money they get is not cash out of the budget yes that's extra. I mean, it's like in the movie Men in Black, where uh, Judd Hirsch has a line. He says, do you really think a hammer costs $250? No, 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 no. not at all. Uh, John Kirby, a National Security Council communications official for the White House, was less jokey. He went on to say, we wouldn't have stood up for an organization at the Pentagon to analyze and try to collect and coordinate the way these sightings are reported if we didn't take it seriously. Uh, well, you know, the deeper we get on this, the more skeptical I get. And and I'll tell you this. This is the argument we had a, a, within the last couple of weeks. Do you really think that part-time politicians, and I say part-time politicians, and that, you know, we, we, we tend to talk about our elected officials that come in in the House and Senate uh, that may be there for two, three, four terms, these people that are dealing with career alphabet positions that that have probably been sitting in there for 30 40 years and have the real information do you think these real position players are going to turn around to elected officials and say oh sure have all the information you want mm-hmm. i don't yeah, think I, so I, yeah i think that if they if they told elected officials 10 to 15 percent, that would be amazing um, because some of the things, all right, let's face it. There are some of the politicians who are out there. You really don't want to tell them anything because either they'll just blab it or they'll exaggerate it or they'll yeah. use it for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's said, well, I've got this information about these aliens flying in space, you know, and they, they're up for re-election or something, you know, it's, it's just not, not something you want to do. Well, then after you're done with your term or you're voted out of office, what do you do with it? You're a civilian. You're a civilian walking around with top secret information. And and the idea was that in one of the latest bills, they were going to try and force these alphabet agencies to tell them the information that they had. Well, okay, so first of all, that's kind of a joke. If it's been sitting top secret for years and years and years, and it was only maybe even the, the, the office of the president that got a hold of this, and no one underneath them because of security clearances, then why is it the average senator is going to get a hold of this or the average you know representative is going to get a hold of this? And then maybe four to eight years later, you're out of office. Then what? The, you know, how can you be trusted with it and that you're going to keep your mouth shut? I, I don't get where the, the, the rationale is there. 
yeah, it, uh, it's it's better to just kind of keep those cards close and let them play their own little game and go on doing what they do. Yeah. And, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. Well, the next story I have is a former astronaut turned senator is uh, asked, well, believe it or not, on a program whether he's seen UFOs. Former astronaut and Arizona Senator Mark Kelly told CNN's Jake Tapper that he's skeptical when it comes to UFO claims and whether they are aliens. But he says support, he supports uh, greater transparency with the American people when it comes to the topic. Um, I do have a clip here, but I, I think I'll refrain from playing it because it, it pretty much just goes on and on about how he, he waffles about, oh, well, no, yeah, mm, yeah maybe. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of that. Uh, but again, it's, it's, a, it's another person who's been to space who says, oh, sing craft, but doubt it's aliens. How do you see something that, but yet doubt something is, is one of those things that I, I cringe about. You know, one of the things that's always uh, not concerned me, but bothered me about all of this is that we see things in the context of who we are and how we live. Mm -hmm. That does not necessarily mean that other things in other universes or other places are built exactly the same as we are. Sure. You know, they, they say, well, you have to have water to live. We don't know that. We don't know that there aren't other beings someplace else that can exist on something else. And the other thing is, you know, the concept of, uh, that uh, we build these uh, things in our own image um, and that they have to be humanoid style or something. And that doesn't necessarily have to be true. Something that is uh, an alien or a foreign force, you know, it could be a, in their universe could be as small as a speck. And that speck might be able to travel at the speed of light mm -hmm. because it is so tiny. There is so little, you know, uh, holding it back. So the whole concept of, of uh, you know, people looking at things and saying, well, that, you know, it could be, it couldn't be, we do, we don't think, but, well, it's not like us, so it's probably not, it's nothing. I mean, you don't know that. I mean, it could be anything. Very true. So. There was a tweet by Tom DeLong, who's, uh, again, a musician, but at the same time was the head of uh, AATIP or AATIP uh, at one time, and and. He, he actually came out with this tweet, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and it said uh, something, that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not, I'm not reading the actual tweet, but it says, had the truth about aliens, turns out they come from the future or something to that effect, but it was a one-line tweet, and it was just mm -hmm. this little one-line tweet where he he claims to have had, have the truth, but it's like more to come. You know, like, yeah. I'll let you know more in the future. But mm -hmm. there's these little tiny leaks, but but people are reluctant to put it out there. And I don't get that part either. You know, if you're going to come forward, come forward and just spill your guts. Well, the thing is, though, is that when you if you do something like that, then you've automatically opened yourself to be splayed by every person in the universe who disagrees with you. I mean, yeah, it's not easy to talk about something that people don't readily identify with or people that who refuse to believe it from the very start, mm -hmm. that they will have a opposing uh, thought process to anything that you put in front of them. And uh, so if you're going to say something and if you put something out there that is uh, the antithesis to everything that everybody else thinks, you can put a lot out there, get a huge blowback and never be heard from again or 
you can put a little bit of bait out there so people will read it so that people like you or I or anybody else will go, hmm, I wonder what that's about. And then slowly build it as an awareness process, which supposedly is one of the philosophies that the federal government is using over the last 50 some years, releasing bits and pieces about what they know about UFOs and UAPs and uh, and the different things uh, that uh, are unknown to us. And that is that we couldn't uh, be exposed to it all at one time because it would overwhelm us. Well, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But uh, supposedly that's the philosophy that if we can do a little bit at a time, little bites, uh, you'll be able to consume it, understand it, and, uh, make it a part of what you understand in your thought process. And then we can add in more later on. Very true. It's almost like brainwashing in a way. Yeah, it is. It, it very much is. Very much is. Moving on, uh, scientists have discovered a new type of star powered by dark matter. They're calling it dark stars. We had one of those at WCCO for a very, very long time. I don't know if you remember this or not, Bob. Uh, he loved his golf. He loved his drinks. Uh, I don't know. He seemed to rotate around Minneapolis for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an I'm inside joke. I'm not going to say anything. I am not going there. I'm staying out of it. I, you it's might have had a run-in or two with a dark star at one time. Is that what you're saying? I'm not. I, I'm of an age. That's all. So. <laughs> you're, you're of an age. Yes, I know a lot of people and knew a lot of people and uh, don't really uh, uh, want to, uh, you know. <laughs> you don't want to disparage. Is that what you're saying? You don't want to, you know, both living and not living. Or those who, I don't want to say they're not living, but they're no longer of this. They're you know, no longer on this plane. We'll put it that way. Yeah, they could be almost anywhere. I don't need them coming back and, you know, putting a whoop on me. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, stars have long fascinated humanity, radiating brilliance from the vast expanse of space through the process of fusion where atoms fuse together and release energy. Dark stars turn this imagery inside out and may be the long-hunted source of dark matter. An incredible discovery conducted by a team of three astrophysicists suggests the existence of an alternative source of stellar power behind these dark stars. Analyzing images captured by the James Webb Space Telescope, the researchers have identified three exceptionally bright objects that may be what they call dark stars. The analyzation, or rather the annihilation, I'll get that word right, of dark matter particles could potentially fuel these theoretical celestial bodies. It would make them much larger and more radiant than our own sun. Confirming the existence of dark stars would not only revolutionize our understanding of stellar evolution, but also provide uh, crucial insights into the elusive nature of dark matter. Uh, this is one of the most profound unsolved mysteries in the realm of physics. Leading to this captivating research endeavor are Catherine Fries from the University of Texas at Austin. She worked in collaboration with Cosman Cosman. Ely, I believe, and Jillian Paulin uh, from Colgate University. Discovering a new type of star is pretty interesting all by itself, but discovering it's dark matter that's powering this, that would be huge, expressed Freeze, who serves as the director of the Weinberg Institute for Theoretical Physics and holds the prestigious Jeff and Gail Kodosky Endowed Chair in Physics at UT Austin. Dark matter, which constitutes about 25% of the universe, has long perplexed scientists due to its elusive nature. 
Researchers believe it comprises a novel type of elementary particle. The ongoing quest to detect and understand these particles continues. One of the leading candidates for dark matter particles is weakly interacting massive particles or WIMPs. I bet you didn't know that that anagram uh, was uh, out there, Bob. You know, it makes you wonder who comes up with the name. Right. Now, here's an interesting fact. When WIMPs collide... They self-annihilate, releasing heat that permeates collapsing hydrogen clouds, transforming them into luminous dark stars. So that's how you get them. The identification and characterization of supermassive dark stars holds potential to unravel the secrets of dark matter or studying their observable properties. So there you go. The research findings have been published in the esteemed Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, delivered to my doorstep at 3 a.m. on every Thursday. You know, the thing is about uh, the dark matter, it's so hard to study because you cannot get a reflective um, signal back, basically. Sure. You're, sending an electro, you're sending an electromagnetic field basically in to study something, and it disappears. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just gone, um, which is one of the things that Einstein studied uh, when he was looking at the, uh, the curvature of uh, energy. And uh, where he said that uh, the curvature of energy within a, a dark star or a dark element was such that you could find time travel in the space of the curvature of the dark matter. Hmm. And uh, that uh, it was one thing that he was never able to prove because he didn't have the technology capabilities at the time. Mm-hmm. But it is something they have since gotten closer to being able to prove. And uh, there are certain celestial things that have to come into order, the whole astrophysics thing that have to align to be able to get the proper uh, the ability to study it, which only goes to show you that for as much as we know and as much as we think we know, we really don't know as much as we think. That's very, very true. You're very right about that. Um, <laughs> this next story is one of those really did that really happen? Stories that we were talking about at the beginning of the program, and not from Florida, is it? Oh gosh, let me check this because I don't know. You may no, no, it's from France. Uh, uh, th- this is a typically French story, though. Um, you're sitting outside, you're having your coffee, your cafe au lait, your mocha, chocachino, crappy, whatever you're drinking, and. Uh, <laughs> First of all, I have to ask you, have you ever been sitting outside on the porch and been hit by something? Random fly? Bird poop? No, but I once I once had a bird drop a load on my on my shoulder when I was walking. So There you go. Does that count? That does count. Um, I've been hit by random flying insects. Uh, I did get hit in the side of the head by a by a I think it was a bumblebee or a, a it it uh, it didn't leave its stinger in me, but it hurt. So it must have I must have got stinger first. Mm-hmm. Um, it stung for a little bit. You know, I'm not complaining. I'm not a wimp or whatever that anagram. Yes, you is. are. You're complaining. You're complaining right now. Just suck it up and tell it's, the truth. You're complaining. It's not the worst thing it can be hit by while having your coffee out on the porch, though, Bob. Now, what would that be? A meteorite. <laughs> A meteorite. A meteorite. Yes. This woman in France claims she was hit by a meteorite while having coffee with her friend. It can happen. Okay. Sure. A woman in France recently was enjoying her coffee with her friend, and she was struck by a small meteorite in what is considered an extremely rare event. (laughs) Okay. How? You, You know, 
we've all played the lotto from time to time. It's extremely hard to win more than a couple of bucks. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, we've all done things with extremely high odds. It's extremely hard to win. As much as I've sat outside with the chipmunks, uh, none of them's ever jumped up in my lap and patted me on the head and said, you're a good boy, Timmy. That would be extremely high odds, right? So what do you think? The, or, mush- or, or mushrooms. Right. So what do you think the odds are that you get hit by a meteorite while sitting there having coffee? I, I don't disbelieve the possibility. I mean, anything's possible. I mean, you know, it's uh, kind of strange. The fact most meteorites burn up before they make it to, to, to Earth. Right. So. Right. It, it, the chances have to be minuscule at best. The, the woman was chatting with her friend outside on a terrace when she was hit in the ribs by a mysterious pebble. That's how small it got. A pebble. Yes, by the time it got to her. That's what I'm saying. So how do you know it's a meteorite? Here we go. French could be a kid with a slingshot. That's true. It could have been. It it could have been. in the ribs. Yes, in the ribs. So it had, it wasn't a trajectory from the sky. It came at an angle that it hit her ribs. Yes. Right. My French is terrible, but let me see if I can nail this here. Uh, French newspaper... Le Denier Nouvelle Dialsis, maybe DNA. Yeah, DNA. Yeah, you're right. There you go. It's Mm -hmm. DNA. Uh, Reported this story. I heard a big poom coming from the roof next to us. In that second that followed, I felt a shock on the ribs. I thought it was an animal or a bat, the woman said, who has not been identified. She told that to DNA. We thought it was a piece of cement the one we apply to the ridge tiles, but it didn't have the color. Meteorites are space rocks that survive the journey through the Earth's atmosphere and hit the ground. These objects known as meteoroids when they are in space range in size from dust grains to small asteroids. Uh, meteoroids originate from other large bodies, Primarily asteroids, but also the moon and other planets like Mars, meteoroids can be rocky, metallic, or a combination of the two. Most meteoroids disintegrate completely as they speed through the Earth's atmosphere at tens of thousands of miles per hour. Of those that do make it to the ground in some form, typically only a small percentage of the original object survives. When meteorites are found, they tend to range between the size of a pebble and a fist. How would you like to be hit with a fist from space? No. I was going to say that great-grandpa Dennis had asteroids, but he used Preparation H. Yeah, that, that's a typical. I can give you one of these here. There you go. <laughs> Thank um, you. There, you're welcome. Uh, after being struck by the rock, the French woman, who is a resident of the commune of Chirmic, I believe it is, in the northeast of the country, took it to a roofer for examination. The roofer told her that it was not made from cement, but that it looked like a meteorite. She then showed the mysterious object to geologist Theory or Thierry Rebman. Uh, the geologist told TNA or DNA that the rock appeared to contain a mixture of iron and silicon uh, and could be a meteorite. In total, all the pieces of the meteorite that have been recovered have a total mass of almost four ounces. That's a lot to be hit with from space. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Rudman said the phenomena of people being struck by such objects is extremely rare. I got to think you'll win the lottery before you'll be hit with a meteorite from space. I've got a couple of questions here. Did she get to keep the meteorite? Because sometimes they have precious chemicals in them. Yeah. I don't know. You know? It's, it's not said in the article whether she did or not. I would think the government would have took it. That's uh, possible. And then the, the next question is, you said she was part of a, a commune where in France? What was the name of it? Uh, the commune is in... I'm, the only reason that I ask is that, uh, and I'm not plugging my, my podcast. Yes, I am. Urban Legends and Stranger Truth. <laughs> um, uh, because I, I do have people that are part of two different communes in France who consistently contact me mm-hmm. about things that we've had on, on our show. So, on uh, my show. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just curious if it was from that. Where thing. was that commune? The commune was... Well, that's all right. I mean, you know, it's probably more than you need to look for. You can move on to other things now. Okay. Uh, she's a resident of the commune of... Shirmick, S-C-H-I-R-M-E-C-K, Shirmick in the northeast of the country. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Kind of wild. You know, Europe is very different than, than America, obviously. And it has all these wonderful things that they do. And a commune is one of them. I mean, and, and people think, oh, commune, they've got to be communists. Not necessarily. No. no, no. You know, Just means they in, in Israel, live together. They, in, in Israel, there would be a kibbutz. You know, just a different name. So it's just the same idea. I'm sorry, I'm digressing and I'm taking you away from interesting things. No, no, no. It just means they're all together in a tight community. That's all that means. So I was with a community where we got tight once, but well, that's a whole different story. Let me give you another one of these. There you go. Uh, I'm I'm working up to getting at least a half a dozen. (laughs) <laughs> well, much to the uh, much to the chagrin of our audience, um, they love it when I do this. By the way, uh, some people just get absolutely driven nuts by that. I don't know what that is, but well, you know, it's, it can be irritating if it's too much. I yeah, mean, yeah, a little bit, I guess. I guess. Uh, before we go to break, one more story here. I know it may not be supernatural, but interesting nonetheless, especially to our True Crime Tuesday audience. The identity of notorious serial killer Jack the Ripper may finally have been revealed for the 970th time. I put that last part on there. Uh, it seems like we have an answer to this 14 times a year. A new book claiming to have cracked the case of one of the most notorious serial killers in history is now out. Uh, In the 19th century, Jack the Ripper was the terror that struck in the night on the streets of London with five confirmed victims that kept the Victorian public both terrified and tantalized. One of the reasons why this story has persisted for so long is because after all this time, we still don't know who he or she, it says, was, though there have been quite a few candidates over the years, plenty of effort has gone into trying to discover the identity of Jack the Ripper, but there are several suspects uh, and nobody can seem to agree on a concrete culprit. One of the prime suspects in the case has been Aaron Kosminski, who is a Polish immigrant to London who has some DNA evidence pointing towards him, while also being the man police at the time thought was most likely to be the killer. However, a new book has claimed to reveal the true identity of Jack the Ripper and points the finger of the blame at a man named Hyam Hyams. Interesting. Uh, He was an epileptic, alcoholic cigar maker who lived in the Whitechapel area, and would have been in his 30s in 1888, the year of the confirmed Ripper murders. 
according to author Sarah Bax Horton, whose great-great-grandfather worked on the original investigation into Jack the Ripper. She pored over medical records and witness accounts to arrive at her conclusion. In her book, One-Armed Jack, Uncovering the Real Jack the Ripper, she claims that descriptions of the serial killer line up with some infirmities Hyams suffered from. Speaking to the Daily Telegraph, she said for the first time in history, Jack the Ripper can be identified as Hyam Hyams using distinctive physical characteristics. He was particularly violent after several epileptic fits, which explains the periosity of the murders in the files. It said what the eyewitnesses said, that he had a particular gait. He was weak at the knees and wasn't fully extending his legs. Of course, this is just one theory among many as to the true identity of the serial killer, though if it really was Hyams, then what happened next might explain why Jack the Ripper seemingly stopped after a few months. In December of 1888, he was sent to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary and spent much of the rest of his life incarcerated in asylums. He was described as violent and dangerous while in 1889, just 10 days after being discharged from Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum, he was sent to the City of London Lunatic Asylum after stabbing his wife before being transferred to Colney Hatch a few months later. From 1890 until his death in 1913, he was kept incarcerated in Colney Hatch. Now, I haven't read the book, so I can't say for sure, but the question remains... Did he have surgical knowledge? Because that's one of the things that Jack the Ripper had. And how would he have dismembered bodies with such knowledge? That's what they say, yeah. And it seems like it's like every two years there's a book that comes out. Um, so, it uh, one of those unknown mysteries. I'll have to look into that. That would be an interesting guess for True Crime Tuesday. And, and to uh, look into the book and see exactly what the rationalization is for that um i I get the physical infirmities and and why you would come to that to that uh suggestion but you know our good friend jeff mudgett was convinced that his great grandfather was a great great grandfather was also jack the ripper as well and he has his and he even had a television series about it um and he had his rationales as well. Everyone's got a, a rationale as to their favorite uh, pick, I guess, if you want to put it that way for Jack the Ripper. But it's all very interesting. But there's a reason why uh, there hasn't been a solid link found. So there you go. We're gonna what take- we need to do is, is we actually need to get in touch with people who were our relatives and their history going back in that time. Because our relatives would not have been Jack the Ripper, but they probably would have been in the same cell block as Jack the Ripper. <laughs> very true very true uh let's take our break folks when we come back uh of course we've got ai stories today and they're particularly interesting uh we'll we'll just tease by saying that uh ai is fed up they're mad as hell and maybe they're gonna go on strike <laughs> we'll, we'll tease you okay. with that uh we've also got a haunted doll story on the way for you mm. yeah i know right uh, that and clowns. That and clowns, huh? Uh, yeah. We'll we'll talk a little bit about Bigfoot. Uh, the creator of Star Trek is being buried in space. We have a story on that as well, and we'll end the day with a story about a singer who's divorcing her ghost husband. I guess it's yes, it's over. We'll call it a day. I know I'm quoting song lyrics, uh, but you know what? 
sometimes love just doesn't last even in the afterlife. So we'll we'll wrap up our day with that. Uh, you're listening to Supernatural News and Parish Air on a Supernatural News Wednesday right here on Darkness Radio. Welcome back to the best in paranormal podcasting. This is Darkness Radio. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our co-host today is Bob Dennis from Urban Legends and Stranger Truths. Are you surprised I remember that, Bob? <laughs> yes, I am. Did you write it down? Uh, yes, on my arm. <laughs> That's the <laughs> only way I can remember stuff these days. I'm getting old. Uh, it's time now for that uh, time you all look forward to in the week. Oh, see, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I hit the rim shot instead of the one I was supposed to hit here. That tells you I'm definitely getting old. It's that time once again to tell you about your favorite subject of the week. The one you love, the one you know, the one that's taking your jobs. Yes, we're talking about AI. Turns out you guys aren't the only ones concerned about AI. The UN Security Council is holding their first talks on AI risks. It's gone worldwide, Bob. Worldwide, like a virus. Like a virus, that's right. It's, uh, you know, here in the U.S., we've had some concern from our government when it comes to whether this is a threat. And, and, you know, there's, I, I reached out this week to the filmmakers and, and thanks to our audience our audience is, is all over this thing uh, a listener got a hold of me and said hey Tim there's a there's a new movie on Netflix uh, about our government and the defense department using AI with weapons and if you watch the and I'm trying to remember the name of the movie now if you watch the trailer for it it's chilling and, and one of the things in the trailer says if you aren't using AI infused weapons you're behind the times already. Really? Yeah. And so I reached out to the filmmakers and I'm waiting now for a response, but that may be one of our show topics here coming up in the next couple of weeks. The United Nations Security Council now will hold its first formal discussion on artificial intelligence this week in New York with Britain to call for an international dialogue about its impact on global peace and security. So no, we're not just imagining things, folks. Governments around the world are considering how to mitigate the dangers of emerging AI technology, which could reshape the global economy and change the international security landscape. Britain holds the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council this month and has been seeking a global leadership role in AI regulation. British Foreign Secretary uh, James Cleverly will chair the discussion on Tuesday. In June, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez backed a proposal by some artificial intelligence executives for the creation of an international AI watchdog body like the International Atomic Energy Agency. Interesting stuff here. Um, So you may ask yourself, I mean, there's some people that would argue that the UN isn't much of a watchdog. It's kind of a a matador and that it may just wave its cape and let some stuff through that it can't stop much. I'm interested in what you think about this, Bob, and what you think that uh, the UN could do about something like uh, AI. 
it's uh, I'm trying to be not politically correct, but diplomatic. Um, the United Nations, in the context of certain things, is excellent. Mm-hmm. In the context of other things, yeah, not so much. It has never been an organization with tremendous teeth. And that is primarily because the power that is behind the United Nations has primarily been the United States. Yes, there are other superpowers that have supported the United Nations and what they have done, um, but it has always basically been the conduit of trying to get things done worldwide by, by the uh, United States. Uh, that having been said, I have a hard time believing that that said same organization and their technological capabilities are such that they are going to be better or more advanced than some of the individual countries that themselves uh, consistently delve into and research into the capabilities of AI and what they can or cannot do. Uh, I just read an article from Elon Musk a while back. Now, I'm not a huge Elon Musk fan, but he's an interesting man. Yes, he is. And he, he sent a note, believe it or not, to China and uh, told them that uh, they better wise up because if they don't, uh, their country is going to be taken over by AI. Now, whether that was, whether it was true or a ploy or, or something he actually thought, it's like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. So uh, I don't think anybody really has a handle on it, except possibly Bruiser. Bruiser has got a pretty good grip on this. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a story out there, and I, I don't have it in front of me, and I apologize that I don't, that... And I should I should really pull it up. We have so much so much today in the in the kitty as far as news goes that I, I left it out. Maybe we'll bring it up next week. Having to do with I don't remember if it's China or Japan that's falling in love with an AI news anchor right now. And oh, Japan. It's Japan. Yes, okay. It's Japan, yes. And to me, I can't wrap my head around that. You know, we're talking about deep fakes right now. One of the, the, the huge thing right now with the SAG strike and with the Writers Guild is the likeness and the deep fakes and using things in AI to manufacture programming and manufacture scripts. And for me to sit here and think, well, there's actually humans that are looking at this <laughs> AI generated newscaster and going, Oh my gosh, she's so hot. <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> what? Does the human yeah. brain not wrap around that and go, Well, it's you not know, real? The thing is, is it, well, no, because it has such a context. Unless you know what you're actually looking for, and, and unless you actually recognize the outlines of AI generated content and or pictures of content or deep fakes, um, it would be very easy to be uh, sucked into it. Um, and believe it or not, what you're saying is actually happening in both Japan and China. The one in Japan is one which does traditional newscasts. Mm-hmm. And there has been a huge controversy over that, whether they should do it or shouldn't do it. Whereas in China, they have used it on their program specifically to just spout the party line, to continue to promote and to, to do the, the basic brainwashing of you know what they want to get across. And uh, I'm sure it's very successful in that sense. But I think that as a person, you have to learn to differentiate and discern what is real and what isn't real um, when it's put in front of you. And it's, it's difficult enough today as it is. And as time passes, 
it's going to get even more so. And uh, so, um, you know, it's kind of a kind of a weird, scary kind of thing in some ways. It is that it is. I mentioned the uh, SAG strike in the uh, Writers Guild strike for this. It turns out, Bob, that SAG and the Writers Guild of America may not be the next one to strike because AI has learned from its work and now they want compensation. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you going to pay? Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, where's their bank account? And then what are they going to spend it on? Oh, wait, probably cryptocurrency. That's true. Yeah, well, it might be cryptocurrency. We go to San Francisco where an increasingly vocal group of artists, writers, and filmmakers is arguing that artificial intelligence tools like chatbots, ChatGPT, and BARD were illegally trained on their work without permission or compensation, causing millions of people to lose their lives, or livelihoods, one or the other. Uh, a huge legal threat has arisen from the, or for the companies that deliver the technology worldwide. OpenAI's ChatGPT and image generation DALI Uh, as well as Google's Bard and Stability AI's Stable Diffusion were all trained on billions of news articles, books, images, videos, and blog posts extracted from the internet, most of which are copyrighted. Last week, comedian Sarah Silverman filed a lawsuit against OpenAI and Facebook's parent company, Meta, alleging that they used a pirated copy of her book in training data because of the company's chatbots and that the fact that they could provide an accurate summary of her book. Our novelists are novelists, Mona Awad and Paul Tremblay, who I think may be a relative. Kind of spelled with an E, but same, same idea. Yep. Yep. He writes a lot of mysteries. Yep. Filed a similar lawsuit against OpenAI and more than, uh, than 5,000 authors, including, uh, I believe this is Jody Picoult, Picoult, uh, Margaret Atwood, Picoult, mm-hmm. uh, Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood, and Viet Thanh Nguyen have signed a petition calling on tech companies to seek consent. Uh, cons- consent, consent. Uh, English, much talk you. Uh, no, not re- not lately. Uh, oh, Tim is reading from the paper <laughs> note today. Uh, to give consent and give credit and compensation to authors whose books were used in training data. Uh, Two class action suits were filed against OpenAI and Google, both alleging that the companies violated the rights of millions of Internet users by using their social media comments to train conversational AI. And the Federal Trade Commission launched an investigation into whether OpenAI violated consumer rights with its data practices. Meanwhile, Congress held the second of two hearings on Wednesday focused on AI and copyright with representatives from the music industry, Photoshop maker Adobe, Stability AI, and concept artist and illustrator Carla Ortiz. These AI companies are using our work as training data and raw material for their AI models without consent, credit, or compensation, Ortiz has said, who has worked on films such as Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy, and said in a pr- in this article makes no sense. Said in prepared mar- remarks uses, uh, no other device relies solely on the works of others to generate imagery. No Photoshop, no 3D, no cameras, nothing even close to this technology. A wave of lawsuits, high-profile complaints, and proposed legislation could pose the biggest hurdle yet to 
the adoption of the generative AI tool that prompted OpenAI to launch ChatGPT to the public late last year and prompted Microsoft Executives Tech. Uh, this is written really bad. I bet you this is an AI-generated uh, <laughs> generated article. Um, tech has taken over the world ever since. It says here, Google has and other tech giants declared that the technology... This is not written right. Here's the sentence, Bob. Google and other tech giants declared that the technology was the most important innovation since the advent of the mobile phone, which doesn't make sense as a sentence. Uh, Artists say the livelihood of millions of creative workers are at stake, especially since AI tools are already being used used to replace some man-made tasks. The mass removal of art, writing and movies from the web for ai training is a practice that creators say they never considered or agreed to Uh, but in public appearances and in response to lawsuits ai companies have argued that the using copyrighted works to train an ai falls under fair use a concept in copyright law that refers to the ability to transform content into a transformative way but makes an exception The quote here is, AI models are basically learning from all the information out there. It's like a student going to the library and reading books and then learning to write and read. Kent Walker, who's Google's president of global affairs, said in an interview Friday, at the same time, you have to make sure that you're not reproducing other people's works and not doing things that would be copyright infringement. The movement of creators seeking greater consent on how their copyrighted material is used is part of a larger movement as AI changes long-standing ground rules and norms for the internet. For years, websites have been more than happy to snatch their data from Google and other tech giants for the purpose of helping them appear in search results or reach digital advertising networks that help them make money or get exposed to new customers. Um, let's see here. I want to skip ahead a little bit in this article because it gets kind of chunky here. Because uh, I'm not seeing the point of what the headline is, to be honest with you. It says here that... We have been clear for years that we use data on public sources, such as information published on the open web and public data sets to train the AI models behind services like Google Translate, said Google Central Counsel uh, Halima Dellen Prado. U.S. law supports the use of public information to create new beneficial uses, and we look forward to refuting these baseless claims, is basically what she said. Fair use is a strong defense for AI companies, Uh, said a copyright law professor, because most of the outputs of AI models clearly do not resemble the work of typical humans, but if creators suing AI companies can show enough examples of AI outputs that are similar to their own works, they will have a convincing argument that their copyrights are being infringed upon. I'm trying to get to the point where it says here that AI wants to get paid, Um, but I'm not seeing it. Hmm. I'm not saying it's a misleading headline, but How could that be? they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. Uh, essentially. Um, I mean, we're going over some old ground here, but it, it essentially the fact, like Bruiser has said before, the fact that AI is racist and steals and cheats and lies is, is no big deal. <laughs> it could run for, it could run for office. It could run for office. Uh, to, it, to, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry. 
Oh, I was going to say to wrap up the the story, uh, one of the people that's quoted from says, we need to make sure that there's clear transparency. It is one of the earliest foundations for artists and other individuals to be able to receive consent, credit, and compensation. The fact of the matter is, is how is AI going to do all that? They're not, they're not going to turn around and, you know, something that's open source is not going to turn around and give credit for something when it steals it and then turn around and try to compensate for it. it it's, it's not going to be able to do all that. And not only that, the sentence that you read was was redundant to have both clear and transparency in the same sentence. Um, yes. Yeah. The the, uh, the question I have is that uh, now I have not had any uh, relationship or interpersonal experiences now or ever uh, with the uh, the chat system and programs and the bots, but um, I understand that they are learning. But do they have the capability to extrapolate from information that is provided to them? Or are they merely taking, editing, and repackaging what has been fed into them? It's a good question. I'm I'm not completely clear on it, so I don't know. Hmm. It. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, and um, because what they're saying in that article is that you could take a thought or something that's put out there in front of you, consume it, put it in your brain, turn around and spit it back out in different words, and that that is perfectly acceptable which it is legally. Um, however, what they're saying is that it is being taken and that it is being regurgitated uh, rather in a whole form almost as opposed to uh, being uh, cultivated and then uh, extrapolated. Uh, it's just that kind of a thing. Also, going back a story where we were talking about the anchors, mm-hmm. uh, there was a book, I, I recall it as we were sitting here, a book that was written by a man who was an anchor man of Womites back in the 80s, I'm sure, was called the Myrmidon Project, okay. and it was it was about how, the, how this guy, this anchor, had gotten out of control, and the network had to try and figure out what to do. And they literally grabbed him and cloned him by with a computer, and you know made the anchor computer image uh, what everybody thought, and everybody loved him, and everything. The guy was like, he was contained in a cell. But think about that. That was written back in the eighties, and yet that came true. So what was, was kind of a science fiction thing back then actually has become science fact. It's scary what what we what we imagined even 30 40 years ago is really becoming true today. Uh, and you know there there was a story uh, there's a story I saw probably a couple of weeks ago. We didn't read it here, but the reality of a flying car is is around the corner. There there's mm-hmm. actually a company that's that's close to production on a flying car. Now, can you go out and purchase it right now? No. Um, you can make a prepayment on it. It's called ALIF. It's out in San Francisco. There you go. There you go. Um, but, I mean, a flying car, you know, I, everybody jokes about, well, where was my flying car? You know, I saw it on the Jetsons, but I never got to have it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very close. It's it, very uh, close. It, uh, the uh, model as uh, projected has a range of about 200 miles when it is, uh, I believe when it was flying, when it operates as a uh, car, it can only go 25 miles per hour. That was one of the limitations on it. Then the question became, do you have to be licensed as a driver to drive the car? Yes, you do. Do you have to be licensed as a pilot to be able to fly it? The answer was no. You only had to have a drone license Uh to have to to fly it. That's one of those weird kind of things. See the problems you get into when you talk to me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. You're Uh, still being way too nice. Someday you're just going to look at me and you're going to bark at me like, that's enough. 
just keep doing this Minnesota nights. You know, it's, it's just kind of scaring me. Well, for, How do I know you're not a bot? Well, for a podcast, it's no problem. If it were you and I in, in person, I might shut you up, but... <laughs> but for a podcast, it's perfectly. Wow, okay, there it is. There's a there it is. Okay, now we found it. There, right, it, there is. it is. But no, no. I mean, for a podcast, right. it's perfectly acceptable for, you know, if I had to get out of here and go do some chores, I might tell you, hey, can it, old man? I, I mean, you know, but other than that. <laughs> you know, I'm not that much older than you, just so you no, know. No, I know. We're, we're not that, that far apart. That far apart, even though I am your uncle. Yeah, I know. And you never obey me. So. But you, you said I don't have to address you as my uncle here on the show. I'm just, just saying. Yeah, I know you don't have to. It's kind of weird because when I talk to people and tell them about your show and this program, which is wonderful, I, I enjoy it. I and mean, thank you for having me on here. <laughs> um, you know, I thank will you. oftentimes say, well, you know, my nephew, Tim, and it makes you sound like you're 12 years old. You know, it's like, <laughs> my nephew, Tim, has got a podcast. They're like, yeah, right. And then, no, 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 he's, you know, X number of years old. And they're like, really? He's been doing it that long. Wow. And it just, that's great. I'm sorry. I'm digressing. I, I wish I was 12 years old. <laughs> no, you don't. I wish I had the body of a 12 year old. I mean, not, that, that sounded bad, too. Well, that'll get you in jail real fast. <laughs> that, yeah, that'll, yeah, thank you very that'll get me in trouble. Wow. That'll get me in trouble. Let's move on to the next story, shall we? Okay. Uh, there's a, a story here. We're going to get into Bigfoot here. I mean, that didn't sound right either. Uh, but there's a humorous Bigfoot warning issued by Taos County Sheriff's Office. Uh, evidently, they think it's funny to mess with Bigfoot. If they had one in front of them, not so funny. Not so much. No. Uh, in an apparent humorous post, we go to New Mexico. The Taos County Sheriff's Office has offered safety tips for campers in the area due to a Bigfoot warning. The humorous warning states that the species is coming down from the high country to the, I believe this is the Kern River, which is not a river in New Mexico, by the way, uh, to hunt for fish and vegetation. If you happen to see one, here's what you, they're saying you need to do. Uh, go about your business. This is a do, okay? And do take photos documenting the event. <laughs> so you actually, you know, can prove that you had a run-in with Bigfoot. Don't. Do not run toward or away from Bigfoot. Do not yell at Bigfoot. I guess he doesn't like when you yell at him. And do not try to feed Bigfoot. Evidently because you don't have enough food. I don't know. You will be the food. That's right. Uh, the Taos County Sheriff's Office appears to be having fun with the oft-viewed mythical creature. Uh, Yeti is what they're calling him here. The social media post made by the Sheriff's Office during the 4th of July weekend wished everyone a happy and safe and funny holiday weekend. Um, I, that's that's nice, but, you know. Can I get I, something straight? I don't like it when they call them Yeti. For some reason, that just it, it just strikes me as, as being a name or a word that just doesn't. I know it's appropriate. I know it's correct, but I just don't. I like the word Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or something that makes it sound powerful. A Yeti is like, that's my dog. He's a Yeti. Yes, isn't he nice? And, you know, it's like one of those little pocket pooch things. <laughs> I always thought Yeti, of your mind, Tim. Yeti was either uh, it was either a cooler or a cup or a, a well, they, yeah they have those cups that are that are like aluminum or something but then I'm sure that comes after the fact or it's a microphone or it's a it's a regional name for a regional creature I, I always thought Yeti was uh, was in colder climates it's uh, well it's, and for some reason I want to think back to when I was a kid and they had something about a Yeti and it had to do with being up in the mountains of yes. Switzerland yeah something. yeah. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's why I have this, you know, 
you know, aversion to it. It doesn't sound like something in my neighborhood. You don't see Yeti in Louisiana. So that's, no. that's why you refer to it as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that that's why in the middle of New Mexico, I wouldn't see a Yeti. I would see Bigfoot. Yeah, or something. But, but, you know, there are other, I mean, I don't know what the, what the cryptid would be. I'd have to look at one of the books to find out what they have in, in New Mexico. But I'm sure they have something equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you, you have to settle something here for me, because uh, I consider you the bastion of proper grammar. I'm a what? <laughs> the bastion of proper grammar. Are you getting mean now? Oh, bastion. I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't call you the, what you thought I called you. Denunciation. Yes. Yeah, that too. Um, so, all right. So, here's the thing in, in the, the paranormal that drives me absolutely nuts. If you're watching, if you're watching any of the programs, the, the cryptid programs on, on Travel Channel or wherever you're watching it, Destination America or wherever you're watching your, your paranormal programs or History Channel, uh, you'll get somebody who's talking about the plural of Bigfoot. All right. So, now the plural of deer is... You can go ahead and answer this one. The plural of deer would be? I would assume that would still be deer, but yes, I'm probably okay. incorrect. Yes. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. The plural of deer is always deer, right? Mm-hmm. So what drives me up a, an effing wall is when I hear someone go, so I was sitting there in the, in the, in the valley and I saw a bunch of them big feet. <laughs> what are big feet? I have two big feet. I wear size 13 shoes. What size? 13. Oh, all right. Yeah. They're big feet. <laughs> I wear big, I wear big shoes. It, uh, okay. I am looking at this right now. Mm-hmm. It says Bigfoot, the plural Bigfoot or big feet or big foot. That's the other thing that drives me nuts. Why is it Bigfoot? Bigfoot is not proper. The, the plural of Bigfoot is Bigfoot, isn't it? I would have thought of, and I would have stayed with that. I actually knew a guy who was kind of a yutz and called him Bigfoot, but uh, for a different reason. Um, so I would stay with Bigfoot. I mean, I you know that's my my way to hit it. I mean, and, I mean you uh, you could call him a, a gaggle, a group, a. a I don't know, a cadre, whatever you want to call them, but it's still the, the plural of Bigfoot is Bigfoot. You know, they should actually have somebody come up with a, with a phrase for that, for a group of, of or multiples of, of a Bigfoot. Like, I mean, if you have a group of crows together, they're called what? Oh, I, I can't remember. It's um, they're called they're called a murder. Yes, a murder. Yeah, oh, that would be a good one. A murder of Bigfoot. Yeah. Well, no, you can't use it now because it's you know, I mean, you're using it for crows, but I mean. How about a slaughter? A slaughter of Sasquatch? <laughs> no, it's got to be. It's got to be. That alliteration thing is usually what it is. Bigfoot. A bunch of Bigfoot. <laughs> a bunch of Bigfoot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I saw me a bunch of Bigfoot. They're running, knocking right over the hill. If I hadn't been all furry, I wouldn't have known. But all of a sudden, I saw the backside and go over the fence. I said, yes, sir. That's a Bigfoot, all right. <laughs> Sorry. You, you've just described half of what's on cryptid programming right there. You just well, you know, played it out brilliantly. That's what, that's what you've done. Uh, speaking of, let's talk about a possible Bigfoot sighting of the massive creature in West Virginia, which sounded a lot like what you just played out there. Uh, it had thick musculature like a gorilla, it says here. At first, it seems like a huge bear just at the side of the tree line until it turns 
and the profile of the head and shoulders looks like a giant gorilla, but there shouldn't be any gorillas running around West Virginia, at least not in theory. Uh, the creature's face is completely covered in brown fur with just a hint of a mouth able to be seen from the distance of the camera, which is surprisingly close for unsteady footage. It's so completely covered in fur that it seems like the backside of a bear at first glance. <laughs> oh, that's not a good description. <laughs> As it turns it to leave, the profile of its head shows a distinct dome shape and sloping forehead associated with gorillas or with Bigfoot creatures. It disappears into the forest on two legs, revealing the bipedal profile that is very unlike a bear. West Virginia is starting to get a bit of a reputation for cryptid sightings, often with large and hairy creatures that could be Bigfoot. Of course, there are certainly bears populating those woods as well, but they very rarely move like people and have a very distinctive non-human gait when walking upright on their rear legs. It's also becoming increasingly hard for the public to reconcile the difference between what they witness and official reports that contradict their own experiences. Another cryptid with increasing sightings are mountain lions. I don't know that mountain lions are cryptid, which we all know to exist, but for some reason the government insists that they are only in the western portion of the continent and definitely not in the Appalachia region. This is at odds with residents who see signs of the big cats quite often and even occasionally catch a glimpse of them on the prowl. The strangest part about the official stance that mountain lions stay in their designated zones uh, is that we all know they can move and expand territory and that they used to cover all of the United States, so they're isn't any particular reason that they would abide by the imaginary lines drawn in the land by humans. Here's the other thing too, Bob. We've had uh, Dave Spinks on our program recently, uh, within the last few months, and he talked about uh, Dogman. Dogman being one of those uh, in West Virginia. And that could be the possibility too. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this uh, the link to this article up on the description of this show so you can click in and you can watch the video because there is a video of this particular sighting. So, uh, and it was put up by WV Paranormal on TikTok. So you can watch it for yourself and determine what it is exactly they saw. And decide if it's feet or foot. Yes, if it's big feet or foots, big foots, big foot, Sasquatches. Or you could, yeah, or you can conjugate it as if it was a language. Futamos, futais, futan. <laughs> oh well. Also, they had the the big uh, West Virginia Bigfoot uh, Museum Festival in Sutton, West Virginia, in June. That's so that's our friend Dave Spinks. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Who, who runs that? Yep. Absolutely. Right. We encourage you to go out and uh, and take part in it. And watch out! Don't irritate the Bigfoot. No, no, don't do that either. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Are you? Have you battened down your hatches? Are you ready for the creepy haunted doll story? I'm not to believe. <laughs> All right. You know, the whole creepy doll, like clowns and creepy dolls, it never used to be this way. You know, when I was younger, I didn't care. And there was nothing that frightened me. I was going to live to be a thousand years old. Yeah. And, you know, I was full of energy and strength. And there was nothing that was going to intimidate me. Right. And now that I am a thousand years old, I'm like, oh, I'm not really too much interested in that. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, I'm ready. The, the, the doll museum or the doll... This is, uh, 
is it well now you got to tell me see I, I get paranoid now with you on the show of how my pronunciations are we're going to england and is it is it finnedin or is it finding sure okay great I suppose I'll have somebody email me from England saying you're full of shite. It's it's Finnedin. Hey, yeah, what's wrong with you? Can't you pronounce it proper word? <laughs> Good heavens, young man. Uh, we'll say it's Finnedin. It is a picturesque semi-rural village that sits quietly amongst or amidst the county of North Northamptonshire, 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 England. I'll get it. I'm off today. I don't know what my deal is. Uh, the village is famous for its quaint public houses, breathtaking hillside views, and cobbled streets that have awed people for centuries. Residents and visitors alike enjoy the wonders of grassy knolls. Oh, if you're a Kennedy, you don't enjoy a grassy knoll. Yeah, that's just, not my program. Yeah. Too soon? Is that too soon for that? No, no, no. It's only been 50 some years. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, peaceful 60 some years yeah, 60 some years yeah uh, peaceful trickling rivers and the gentle bleeding of sheep which is only enjoyable to some people I'm going to leave that joke alone uh, but the town has not always dwelled in such calmness the rise of the black death plague in 1348 uh, saw the once thriving and bustling village slowly deplete of everything that gave it character children's laughter that once graced the lush green pastures slowly began to fade and the clunking sound of horse hooves on the cobbled streets became no more illness and death cast their sticky web of destruction over every home forcing many to flee by the way have i set the scene for you yet uh, is this person being paid by the word or what yeah I, mean, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of i think they are let's skip ahead to the black death shall we fortunately the black death eventually succumbed to nature resettlement began sometime in the 17th century and life returned to finnedin or finding however you want to say it inns were again filled with laughter uh, farming began to flourish, and the once death-infested homes began occupied by young and happy families. The town continued to develop into the 20th century with no further signs of misfortune until a young school teacher was appointed the village school's headmistress in 1901. Her name was Mary Ozier. And curiously, our tale begins with nothing other than a kind gesture from this professional lady. Proud of her appointment and seeking to christen her new status, Mary pondered greatly. Uh, she also needed something unique to commemorate the Finnedin School's upcoming anniversary, something that reflected the unique and quirky character of the village and school. She chose a beautifully crafted wooden doll and strategically positioned it in a small alcove above the school's main entrance, where it could be admired by all and keep watch over everything. Very little is known about the origins of the doll. It is believed to be, or it was believed that it was made by a mysterious merchant who Mary allegedly met on a quiet country walk one afternoon. After conveying her ideas for the commemoration, the merchant gifted Mary the doll. Conveniently, it lay inside a sack upon his back. <laughs> Alliteration. Uh, he took no payment, walked away, and was never seen again. That's always an ominous type deal. Uh, the doll was deemed peculiar from day one by all who saw it. Mary's sentiment was appreciated by the locals, but there was something about the doll's aura. Oh, God, well, what is that you're holding up to the screen? <laughs> it's a doll. It's a possessed doll. Okay. Weird I just thought I'd scare you there. Way to throw me off. Well, you know, uh, you're doing your best. Okay. 
the doll was deemed peculiar from day one by all who saw it. Mary's sentiment was appreciated by the locals, but there was something about the doll's aura that emitted an uncomfortable, eerie feeling. Standing at approximately three feet in height, it's a, it's a big doll. The figure was so intricately carved that the dark brown flowing dress almost looked real. Equally impressive was the carved white Dutch cap that adorned the head. The face appeared emotionless with dark staring eyes and tightly closed lips. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a nice looking doll. Uh, these features were a strange contrast to the cherub cheeks upon which they sat. The doll's attire closely resembled the fashion of the modern-day Puritan woman, complete with dark boots and a slight heel, also carved with wood. The Dutch headpiece became the doll's most famous and defining feature. It also resembled the hat worn by the children of the school at the time. As curiosity and uncertainty grew, the strange figure eventually became known as the Dutch doll of Fenadin. Finally and probably the strangest feature of all was that is what sat tightly grasped in its hands. On the right was a Bible, and on the left was a scroll that bared the writing, Search the Scripture, John verse 39. Days after the doll's arrival, unexplicable or inexplicable events began to unfold. The once tranquil and carefree vibes of the school turned to anxiety and dread. One morning, a chastised student was sent to the school's front lawn to spend her break alone while others played in the yard at the rear. As she moped, a startling gust of wind appeared from nowhere, knocking her backward with great force. The girl grazed her head as she fell against an old tree. Within seconds, the wind was gone and the calmness of that June morning returned. As the girl composed herself, she saw something that chilled her to the marrow and contested until her dying day. Peering down from its concrete throne, the doll waved its left arm, scroll in hand, and juddered violently. The tight wooden lips were puckered, and its eyes glared with sadistic pleasure. Within seconds, the face returned to normal and the arm in its original position. Shocked and shaken by what had happened, the girl ran home, never to return to the school. Since that horrifying incident, many students recounted witnessing the doll move on its own, and the school and the school record book reportedly possessed pages of daily occurrences depicting many traumatizing accounts. In the dead of night, the students who lived as boarders could often hear the sound of tiny pattering feet scurrying through the hallways. Yeah, no. Uh, dormitory doors would open on their own and scratching sounds could be heard on the doors. Some students claim they saw tiny wooden hands and beady wooden eyes peering around open doors before they were violently slammed shut. Piercing and blood-chilling cackling could be also heard throughout the school. Quite often, the shrill cries disrupted lessons and caused panic among teachers and students alike. Concerned for the students' welfare, staff and parents decided to examine the doll during a school holiday. Convinced that the doll possessed a mechanical feature that could explain the phenomena, it was brought down from its cove above the door. After a thorough search, nothing was found. It was suggested that the doll may have been used in witchcraft rituals or even acted as a vessel for a malevolent spirit. Taking no chances, the now-haunted doll was permanently removed from the cove. It was tightly locked in a chest and placed in the school's dank, dark cellar.
For a short while, calmness settled upon the school, and during this period, poor behavior would often be controlled with tongue-in-cheek threats of detention in the cellar. Students trembled at the thought of being at the mercy of the wooden demon. It was the perfect deterrent. As time passed and incidents lessened, students began to believe the stories had been nothing more than a hoax. That was until a young student was sent to the cellar to retrieve more slates. Oh, are you ready for this one? Okay. All right. As the student gathered resources, she heard an almighty crash behind her. The chest that housed the doll had fallen from a shelf and hit the floor with a deafening thud. Slowly, the chest started to rattle and vibrate furiously. A series of violent thumps followed, and the chest edged towards the girl. Groans and gasps could be heard from inside the chest, each one more penetrating and violent than before. The student fled the cellar immediately, terrified and shaken by the incident. She, too, left the school, never to return. Eventually, the cellar was permanently closed, leaving the haunted doll entombed and alone for many years. Although the phenomenon increased, a lingering and anxious atmosphere engulfed all who walked throughout the school. And despite the cellar being deep below the classrooms and far from the dormitories, strange laughter and voices could still be heard. The chilling echoes pounded through the school in the dead of the night for many years. Decades passed, but the phenomenon and unrelenting feelings of dread persisted. A new head teacher, determined to alleviate the school of its supernatural reputation, had the doll removed. It was taken to the local St. Mary's Church and fixed tightly to the west wall. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Uh, Locals hoped this would eliminate further troubles and suppress whatever strangeness lurked inside. As a result, the school returned to a state of calm that had not been felt for almost a century. Years passed and the memory of the Dutch doll began to diminish. All that remained were the frightening tales that once plagued the school passed down through the generations. That was until an alarming and unexpected event took place. On the 24th of January, 1981, the parishioner unlocked the church to prepare for his daily duties. Upon walking to his altar, he noticed something unusual on the west wall. Further inspection revealed that the Dutch doll was no longer there. The hooks and bolts that kept it secure were strewn on the floor. Confused and unnerved by what had happened, the parishioner immediately visited the local police. Fears of supernatural forces being responsible resonated with him more than the idea of a potential thief. The parishioner knew that he had locked and bolted all the church doors the previous evening. All windows had also been locked, and only he possessed the key. It hadn't been possible for anybody to gain entry without his permission. As a result, homes, fields, shops, and even the school were aptly searched. Locals were questioned, but to no avail, and restlessness returned to the town. Tales of the haunted doll and superstition began to resurface, causing some parents to remove their children from the school amid the fear that the doll had returned. Fears of misfortune and miscellaneous activity repeating themselves grew at an alarming rate, forcing the town's hierarchy to act. The townsfolk were reassured that the doll would be found and returned to the church. Despite everyone's effort, the haunted doll was never recovered. No further progress has since been made, and its disappearance remains Finadin's biggest mystery. Is the Dutch doll residing in your home? It might be wise to check all those dark places before going to bed. Yeah, I'm not buying it. Not buying it? 
Nah, it sounds like something somebody wrote for some, you know, like a, a PR kind of thing in there. Now I saw it. I looked it up while you were doing. That's not scary. That's just <laughs> some dumb wooden doll. I mean, you know. Now watch. So the doorbell's going to ring. It's going to be something strange. That's right. It's going to be the Dutch but, doll at your door. I mean, the one I shared with you with all the weird face, that was scary. That was some scary oh, stuff. This thing yeah. is like a card wood doll. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I guess I'm. I'm thinking that it's going to be more like a like a like a Stephen King kind of thing, you know. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, could be, could be. Let's so switch gears here. Uh, okay. Yeah, Let, let's switch gears here, uh, if 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 you will. We have three stories left here on supernatural news, so uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna address death a little bit here and not like we haven't already but we're going to address uh death and possession here on the uh the last couple of stories uh we're going to start with an ohio woman who thinks her pool might be possessed this is the ah come on already part of our our show uh actually you know what i'll i'll save that one i'll save that one let's talk about gene roddenberry the uh, creator of star trek uh before we get to that story uh the star trek creator has been sent into orbit or will be for the first deep space burial you know mally and i had talked about the seven different ways you could get rid of your body when you die (laughs) Mm -hmm. in last week's episode uh one of them was a space burial which she said uh, mr fox her her father would like to be shot into space uh when he dies it turns out that uh uh, Gene Roddenberry, I believe, is is being sent up. Nearly 200 separate remains, including those of the late Star Trek creator, and two of the show's cast members will be a part of the inaugural, inaugural I can say that, deep space mission to permanently orbit the sun as their final resting place. Okay. That in, does that interest you? Is that, a, is that a final resting place you'd want to take? take part of i'm not much on sun you know i get i burn fairly easy and, yeah you know i um, just I wouldn't have enough you know uh, screen block stuff to bring along i mean they'd have to have a whole extra spaceship for me or something yeah yeah celeste is a company that has been promoting space burial since 1994 will launch the first of its kind memorial space flights to take place in nearly 30 years it marks a new twist in space burials for the non-traditional Houston, Texas-based company. It's going to be the first and only repository of our civilization out in the universe, 330 million kilometers out into space, said Celestis President Colby Youngblood. No one's done that before, he said. <laughs> I think there's a reason. Uh, the one thing that comes to my mind as I'm reading this story, and I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm getting ADD here, is... Do you think aliens want our remains or our space junk out there? I'm okay. So every time you read something, I, in my mind, I'm also, I'm listening to what you're saying, but I'm also thinking of stories. And the story would be that someone's remains are put into this capsule. It is then sent into space to orbit the sun. As it's orbiting the sun, an alien uh, being of some sort finds it, takes a hold of it, and grabs that DNA, which it mutates with its own DNA to be able to send back to the Earth to begin to repopulate the Earth with their own type of being, capable of surviving on the Earth, and gradually taking over every country in the world. You and I are almost on the same page there. I I thought you were going to say he was going to reanimate that DNA into some sort of super being that would take over the Earth and become our leader. We were close. We were close. That part, right? Yeah. 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 Kind of like a... 
kind of like a Superman type being where he would come back and he'd be really pissed that we shot him off into space. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know how hot it was up there? <laughs> That's Please. right. And there was no air. Uh, yeah. Uh, Celestis already took part in NASA's successful mission to send the cremated ashes of legendary scientist Dr. Eugene Shoemaker or Schumacher to the moon back in 1998 and has completed dozens of round-trip space flights since uh, during the Voyager Memorial Space Flight mission. Uh, the company plans to send 196 capsules of cremated remains of people who have passed away, as well as some DNA of people who are still living. So you can get your there living. There you go. There you go. You can get your living DNA shot up How there. How this cost? I mean... Is this, do they give you a price on this? Because, I mean, you've got to have some change to be able to do something like this. Uh, I think. I mean, if I'm on the program, it's somebody putting me in a little capsule and a slingshot and popping me off in the air, you know, they just like, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the flight- and do they, send the whole, do they send the whole cremated being or are they just sending a part of it? I mean, you know, what are they sending a couple fingers into space or are they going to send the whole body? That's a good question. Let's get through the story and see. Um, the the flight set to launch sometime in 2024 will carry the ashes of DNA. I got to think it's only a partial partial cremains because I got to think some of the family probably split it up. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the flight set to launch sometime in 2024 will carry the ashes or DNA of notable individuals such as sci-fi legend and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, who passed in 1991, and his wife. Uh, Star Trek cast members who also are making their final trip include James Doohan, uh, who played the beloved character Scotty, and Michelle Nichols, uh, also known as Uhura. Uh, instead of getting beamed into space, the personal flight capsules will be catapulted into the universe by way of an explosive rocket launch to take place during a three-day memorial event at Florida's Cape Canaveral the cradle of the American space program. It's a fancy slingshot. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Youngblood also went on to say, we've got a hair follicle from George Washington, president Dwight Eisenhower and president John F. Kennedy all on board on that flight as well. (laughs) I'm sorry. This guy, I want to know how much he's making because this is this sounds like you know somebody who's you know making a buck. I'm sure there's a lot of sponsorship money here. The rocket is aptly named the Vulcan Centaur. Okay, a little bit of Star Trek naming there. Other notables making the journey in the afterlife include NASA's first woman astrogeologist Maretta West and astronaut L. Gordon Cooper Jr. Masuro Tomita, two-time All-Star Japanese professional baseball player and Battlefield Hero Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient SSGT John James Cleaver. The Celestis' own Enterprise flight will travel into deep space beyond the Earth-Moon system and pass the James Webb Telescope orbit around the sun indefinitely. Once the rocket uh, makes it into its interplanetary destination, the most distant permanent human repository outpost will eventually be known as the enterprise station so yes it's got more star trek ties i think paramount probably has money in this yeah somebody uh, somebody's working next thing you know it's going to be a ride at some park somewhere (laughs) 
Maybe. The company also provides a real-time tracking tool for family and friends to keep tabs on their loved ones while their remains travel through deep space. Well, hang on. There goes Dad. Just went by again. (laughs) Everybody wave. (laughs) One couple from Arizona who are sending their DNA on the inaugural Voyager mission called it the ultimate road trip and said they liked the idea of being the furthest human genome from the planet. Here's their quote. We all want to be immortal in some way, and this was an opportunity for us to be able to do something that no one else has done, to go where no one else has gone before. Oh, God, another Star Trek reference. Uh, The launch vehicle for the Voyager mission is being provided by the spacecraft engineering company United Launch Alliance. There's no cost on here, Bob, whatsoever. Yeah, well, oh, well. (laughs) Let's get to the story that's just as ridiculous. An Ohio woman thinks her pool might be possessed. That's right. Satan's picking your in-ground pool uh, to reside. It's called a hot tub. That's why it bubbles, okay? It's not not possessed. You would think the hot tub would be the place Satan would be in, not your pool. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A swimming pool untouched by people was caught impersonating the cup of water from Jurassic Park, seeming to thump as if a T-Rex was stomping around the suburban home. Uh, some are worried that this could be a sign of paranormal activity. The water in the center of the pool goes up and down as if a stationary wave was happening, and the pool owner claims that this went on for hours even though nobody was in the pool. They took to social media to ask if anybody else in Akron, Ohio, was experiencing this or knew what could be causing it. Commenters had a lot of suggestions, starting with seismic activity. This is unlikely due to the location of Ohio, which is not known for earthquakes, but could potentially cause such movement if it was very low on the Richter scale. California residents claim this is a common occurrence when a quake is about to start, but as no earthquakes were reported in Akron, the answer almost certainly lies elsewhere. A few suggestions believe it was the cause of a frequency resonance, with some blaming the Schumann resonances. Uh, No, the Schumann resonances aren't the people who live next door. I I don't have my rim shot up. I'm sorry. Otherwise, I'd give you one of these. Yeah, there you go. Like that. There you go. See? Uh, However, that would not create the effect we are seeing as those resonances are far weaker than the regular magnetic field of the Earth. Uh, It seems the real cause of the strangely moving water is a little-known phenomenon known as a seish, which is a standing wave in an enclosed body of water, usually caused by weather effects such as wind or atmospheric pressure changes. Some pool owners also explain that it could be caused by the water pump returning spray to the surface because of low water levels. So it's not necessarily Satan in your pool, although if he's there, you probably have the right water temperature. There you are. Not to mention the fact that you found a whole brand new word to use when you're surprised by something. Shish. Right. And remember our drink specials, folks. We'll be here till Thursday. That's right. That's right. Our final story today, Bob, is a story of love gone wrong. I mean, who, <laughs> who, okay. who, who hasn't had it happen? You think you've met the right person. You decide to settle down. You, you propose. You drop to one knee. You try to put the ring on, but it's a ghost. Go figure. Uh, a singer has divorced... 
a devilishly handsome ghost of a Victorian soldier after less than a year. Sure, it didn't last that long, but I suppose in ghost years, it was longer. Right? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Uh, a, a singer who married what she claims was the ghost of a Victorian soldier has said that they are divorced less than a year later. That's true. The songwriter and performer who goes only by the name Brocard said she first met devilishly handsome, that's in quotes, quotes, Eduardo when he burst into her bedroom one dark and stormy night. God, the, okay. the, the bullshit is piling high here. I can't, I can't lie. Uh, the 40 year old, 40 years old, and she's meeting ghosts. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of her on my, on my iPad. She's not a, you know, she's, you know, she's all right. Yeah. Not bad looking. Uh, the 40 yeah. year old from Oxfordshire said long haired Eduardo. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. He's from what time period? And he's got long hair. Victorian. Well, that's possible. Victorian. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Short hair really wasn't, you know, I mean, because barbers were not available everywhere in the world back then, I mean, yeah, long hair was not unusual. All right, I'll buy it. Some people had hair, Tim. Come on, give it a break. Yeah, all right. Oh, oh sure. Is that a bald joke? Um, the No, no, no. That's a solar collector for a love machine. That's right. Uh, the 40-year-old from Oxfordshire said long-haired Eduardo immediately announced his love for her and later began confiding in her. Their spirited love affair hit the headlines when Brocard, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly, I don't know, I'm not a big fan, uh, announced they were to marry in a chapel on Halloween in 2022. That's your first mistake. Never get married on Halloween. I know a few people who got married on Halloween and were divorced afterwards. It's bad luck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can see why, but this is a spirit. This is, you know, this is like a guy who he might only be here for a day or so. Anyway, she's lucky she got a year. That's right. Brocard uh, posted a video of the ceremony on Instagram where she was seen wearing all black with an empty space where invisible Eduardo was said to have been standing. However, shortly uh-huh. after they married, Brocard said she was angry that her husband got too drunk on their honeymoon in Barry Island, Wales. What? The ghost got too drunk to perform? Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking not. Come on. Come on. Brocard added that Eduardo would become increasingly possessive and would switch between being warm and intense and threatening, that according to Wales Online. She said, after our initial meeting, Eduardo slowly revealed more about himself to me. I saw his images as a Victorian soldier. He was always in his uniform, even on our wedding day. So he doesn't change his clothes. That's another thing he had going for him. Yeah, that's is that your sword or is that something else going on? <laughs> his face is devilishly handsome, shoulder length, unruly hair. He looks lived in, well-worn, troubled almost. Uh, there's a pain attached to his being. Uh, so she tried to change him. <laughs> oh, man, that, that's the problem. You know, I'm thinking, you're reading this, and I'm thinking about people that I knew back in the 70s matched up that whole, you know, thing. why didn't she just meet some old dude? That's right. That's right. The songwriter, poet, and performer also said she tired of Eduardo's unsettling fascination with Marilyn Monroe. So he was looking at another woman the entire time. Oh, man. He's got a side thing going on here. Wow. Yep. 
Brocard claims the soldier's crush on the late iconic Hollywood actress began on their wedding day when he spotted the spirit of Monroe in the late in the, in the chapel. So wait a minute. Marilyn Monroe showed up to the wedding. Who knew? <laughs> Was there anybody else there? I mean, I don't know. She claims the, the soldier would disappear for days before returning, uh-huh. smelling uh-huh. smelling of Chanel Number no. Five, which was the fragrance uh-huh. which had been Monroe's favorite perfume. Uh huh. Sure, there you go. So he had See? an affair on her. Wow. This brocard has an imagination. Let me tell you. Well, I'm not going there. I'm going to let that one go. The singer's claiming. Or rather, the singer claims setting boundaries infuriated Eduardo, and he allegedly started to haunt her with the sound of a screaming baby. <laughs> oh, Brocard says she returned to the chapel where they married in order to exorcise him from her mind. Oh, sure. Marry him in a church. Get rid of him in a church. You know, it goes back to that bubbling water thing again. You know, throw yeah. the water on him and he's gone. Be gone. She announced the split in her song, Just Another Anthem. So, <laughs> be gone, okay. Eduardo, be gone. Wow. And that, that'll do it. That'll do it for Supernatural News. So, there you go, folks. Uh, don't get caught up with a ghost. Uh, it, it just doesn't pay. Although I you hear... Know, you uh, can't depend on You can't. And although I do hear that alimony is incredibly cheap. So, hmm. There you go. You know, it does. It, uh, is it possible for Eduardo to have a cell phone and and uh, Brocard would text him and he would ghost her? So it would be the ghost ghosting her. <laughs> Thank you. There's three. I got three. I have, you, know. you, you got your third in there before the yeah, end well, of the program. There you go. Yeah, I, my bad. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There you are. Tomorrow on the show. Our guest is quite the interesting one. Uh, Sana Bronner is our guest. We'll be talking about whether or not you wrote the book on your life before you were born. There you are. Yeah. A conundrum wrapped in a scenario wrapped in a whodunit. An enigma. Wrapped in an enigma. An enigma. There you go. Thanks. Thanks for that. I was struggling for that final word. Uh, imagine that you had written a life outline before you were born. If you can picture that, then as the creator of your life story, any crisis you encounter would take on a new meaning because it was authorized by you. Let that swirl around in your brain before tomorrow's show. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna come up with a whole new scenario, I mean, listen, I'm not gonna be a little short fat guy, okay? I'm coming up with somebody tall, handsome. I may even be doing the Eduardo program, you know? I mean, just that's to get, right. you know, that's right. I'd, help them about. I'd be Eduardo, and I'd be bouncing from bed to bed. <laughs> My name is Eduardo, and I am the ghost of the fantasies. Come with me, and we'll grip the life fantastic. Sounds almost like a vampire. You, you sound like my Sharko foot surgeon, <laughs> which you sound like Dr. Pena. Wow. He does. Wow. He sounds like my Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo Montalban. Or uh, you remember years ago on uh, on. Uh, Saturday Night Live, where Billy Crystal played Fernando Lamas. Yes. Remember, yeah. it's better to look good than to feel good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I have a fun time with Dr. Pena. 
I uh, I'm the only guy to ever make him jump. He was he was going to jump jump it, to make him jump. He was he was going to. Uh, it's kind of a gross story, but he. he I don't want to hear it. Not, I had to right. look at the at the baby monsters and, the, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm an old man. I can't handle too much. All right, I'll tell you. Know? you I'll tell you off air. We won't waste any more time here. But tomorrow, Sana Bronner on the show. We'll talk about whether you wrote the book of your life before you got here. So that's uh, that's coming up tomorrow on the show. I got to tell you, folks, we have some. Uh, I, I had a. I can't tell you who, but somebody approached me last night by email. An exciting guest. It's coming up in September, mm. and let's just say it's an A-list paranormal celeb mm. who has a book coming out, mm. and said Darkness Radio is on my short list. Mm. Pretty cool. Short. The word was short, right? No, no. Come on. S-H-O-R-T. Short. Yes, yeah, short. On my short. It wasn't short. a different bottle. No, no, no not, sh- not shit list. On my short oh, list. No, you didn't have to say that word. <laughs> you know? Come on. Clean up your act. Here I thought you were Minnesota nice. Now you're turning into this <laughs> darkness thing. Yeah, so it, it was a it was a good conversation. Good conversation. I already have the book, and I'm already uh, digging into it. Good book so far. So. Hmm. Yeah, actually, looking forward to hear about that. Yeah, you always have these these good books, the good stories, the good you know people that present these things. The uh, uh, I'm trying to think the two gentlemen you had on a while back here, uh, and they were talking about uh, oh gosh, what was it? It was, it was something to do with crime and oh Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood uh, investigators. Yes, that was that was actually I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, Burl Bearer and uh, Fred Wolfson, mm-hmm. I believe is who yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that very much. They were, you know, in my mind, I had a whole mental picture of what they looked like, and you know, it was, it was kind of fun. Well, I have had fun this week, sir. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. You got to get your plug in here for for your show. Which the name of which you can't remember? <laughs> no, it's not that I can't remember. I'm I'm, I'm letting you plug. All right. Uh, well, I do a program. It's it's a short program. It's only five minutes. Each one is a maximum of five minutes, and it is on the Swell uh, podcast. Uh, not a podcast, but on the Swell platform, or you can find it on TikTok. It's probably the easiest way. It's called Urban Legends and Stranger Truths. And it's just odd and unusual things that happen in the world that you might not have had a chance to uh, get a good look at. And sometimes it's just fun things to talk about or how something came about or uh, why things are the way they are. It's, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm not doing a very good job of selling it. But then again, if you listen to it, you might like it, so... And uh, by the way, if, if you uh, don't have the Swell app or you you are having a hard time finding it, you just go to darknessradioshow.com. Wow. And Bob has his own page right there. Are you kidding me? No, it's been wow. there the entire time. Well, I, you know, you know I'm, okay. I'm not going to go there. It'll be nice. I'm, you know, do I still have to give you the money? So you so you say I don't know what the name of your show. It's it's right there on the website. You go to darknessradioshow.com, look for Bob's page, Urban Legends and Stranger Truths of Bob Dennis. He has his own page on darknessradioshow.com. I feel like a legend already. Where you can you can access uh, Bob's show and the the daily show at that and you can catch up with the archive because it's all right there. You can just scroll and uh and find bob's show right there and listen to those great episodes like he said uh, about five minutes in length it's a great way to start off your day and by the way you can also catch up on the different episodes uh yeah you've got see the sturgeon blue supermoons there lake michigan that, that was a new one. 
Yep. AI told a man to kill the queen. You have that one up. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. Wow. AI sneaking up on us. There you go. So you've got that to look forward to and that to catch up with, uh, as well as uh, other episodes of Darkness Radio when you go to darknessradioshow.com. Thank you kindly, sir. There you go. You have been more than kind. So there you go. So that's available. Uh, either go to the Swell app or to TikTok and look for look for Urban the show. Legends. Yeah, Urban Legends. Urban Legends. Straight. I know that. <laughs> Urban <laughs> Legends and Stranger Truths. Or Bob has his own page on darknessradioshow.com. I'm unworthy. No, no, don't say that. Don't say that. And again, uh, if you have a Parashare story, and and I know some people have contacted me and said, well, Tim, I sent you my Parashare story. You haven't read it yet. Again, we're getting to the ones that we have. Um, but we're running low on them. We, we have a few still that we, it's, it's like a store. You know, we have, we have a little bit of inventory, but we're looking to build our inventory because we want to present those stories to you here on the show. If you have a pair of share stories, send it to Tim at darknessradio.com in an email. Or if you want to leave a voice note, the aforementioned darknessradioshow.com, you go to that website, there's a blue button on the right-hand side. Click that blue button. You can leave us a voice note. Two minutes in length is what you get when you click Don't that. push the red button. <laughs> no. Red button, pandemonium, chaos. That's right. But the blue button gets you two minutes worth of a voice note to leave for us. If two minutes isn't enough, click that blue button again. You get another two minutes. I'll stitch it together. I'll make a nice story out of it, and we'll present it here on the show. And if you'd like us to weigh in on it, we will. So there you go. That'll do it for today. Thank you so much for being uh, such a good listener of the show. And and uh, and again, we can't thank you enough for uh, taking uh, time out of your busy life to uh, listen to us goofballs here on the show <laughs> and what we do. Uh, we appreciate you so much. And and thank you once again for, for listening to the best in paranormal podcasting. This has been Darkness Radio.